Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all. God bless you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul had spent 18 months <laughs> of his time in Corinth. Now you think about that this morning. <clears throat> Imagine if we were to read like in the local newspaper that the Apostle Paul was coming to Capitola for 18 months, what would we do? We'd lock up all the doors to all the churches in town and we'd just go to wherever he was. So in light of that, how heartbreaking that he would spend a year and a half in Corinth planning a church and laying a foundation, of course the only foundation he said last time that can be laid, Jesus Christ and him crucified, only come to find out that the church in Corinth that he had planted and cultivated as he writes this letter to them is on the verge of a church split. You remember from chapter one, it was reported to him from someone in Chloe's household that there were contentions among the body. They were suing one another in secular court. They were arguing over the gifts who was more gifted or whose gift was more relevant or useful within the body. And they were dividing over their favorite teachers, which based on what we've seen so far and what we've studied concerning the Christians in Corinth, it's not really that surprising that that would happen, being that they were strongly influenced, as he said, quote, uh, from the wisdom of the age, the wisdom of man, the wisdom of that culture. They were impressed by academia. They were impressed by the philosophers, the poets. They were impressed by some of the same things that we're impressed with today, by celebrity and status and fame and fortune and those kinds of things. In fact, I was with a brother on Friday night and he was telling me that he started a Bible study, a small group of men that he invited, most of which are skeptics. They're not believers. And what he's done is he's kind of taken the reverse approach. He's laid out principles that, as business people, that they all agree are principles that they all would seem to believe are ideal to practice in the world of business today. So he lays out these principles and then traces them back to their origin to show these men that they come from the scriptures. That indeed, what a lot of, quote, personal development teachers do today is they just take Bible teachings, wisdom from the Bible, and then they repackage it, put it in a book, and because their name's on it, and because they're a New York Times or Amazon bestseller, well, then they make it for profit as a result. And people flock to that kind of thing, well, because it's associated with someone who's well-known, a motivational speaker, or someone on the circuit, or uh, author of many books, uh, that kind of thing. Now, it's sad that that's reality, but what's even more sad is that that's the kind of thing oftentimes that infiltrates the church, where the emphasis, rather than being placed on God and God's word, 
is placed on status and celebrity, what's hip and what's hot in today's world. Too often, even Christians, I think, have an inflated view of others, even other Christians in the world, as if somehow there is actually anything that is to be admired, ultimately, or to be impressed by in anyone else in this world apart from what God has done in that person's life. And that's pretty much the point that Paul was making last time. You may remember he asked the question in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? Like, I mean, who are these guys really, speaking of himself, but just ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the, in the increase. Now, it's interesting, and what we're going to see this morning, though, that though there were indeed factions over their favorite Bible teachers in the church, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, Indeed, that was happening. That was a problem in the church. But that was just the tip of the iceberg as far as what was going on. No doubt, they were drawing lines in the sand, aligning with their leaders. But in reality, it was much more than that. It was really symptomatic of a greater heart problem, a deep core problem of pride taking place in the church by which they weren't just dividing over teachers but they were dividing amongst themselves, comparing and contrasting themselves with themselves. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, those that compare themselves by themselves are not wise. Because you've forgotten that it's God who gives the increase. You've forgotten that whatever you have, whoever you are this morning, that is special, that is unique, that is wonderful, that's a gift from God. Praise the Lord for that. But God gave that to you. God made you to be who you are. And as he sort of brings this point to a climax, he's kind of hit on it several times in the first few chapters, but he kind of brings it to a climax here this morning, and then we'll end on a verse that pretty much sums it up in a nutshell and kind of helps us to keep our own pride, not that that would happen to any of you, in check uh, going forward here with one of... Uh, great verses in the Bible. But first, let's pick up where we left off last time in verse 16 of chapter 3. Because when pride is at the core of my ministry or in my fellowship or when we're comparing and contrasting each other, there does tend to be divisions and that really grieves God. He says, verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you? And both words there for you are plural. In the King James, the you is translated ye. So although Paul will later come along in 1 Corinthians and will talk about the temple of the Holy Spirit as our bodies, in this particular instance, he's referring to the church as a whole. He says, verse 17, if anyone defiles, or that word means corrupts, the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you, and again that word in the King James is ye, which temple ye are. So how does anyone defile or corrupt the temple of God? Well, contextually speaking, based upon where Paul is building us here, 
In this instance, be by causing contentions and divisions within the body. And so it's kind of like he's saying, don't you all see, don't you all understand that you all, that ye all make up the temple of God? And the word there for temple of God is the same word that was used to describe the place where God's presence was especially manifested in the temple, the holy of holies. That's what it means. But it's clearly not the actual building or the structure. He's talking about the people where two or more are gathered. That's the temple. As hard as it may be for those of you to believe, this building right here is not the holy of holies. I know that that's a shock for some of you. This building right here is just a building. And if every single one of us next week by chance decided, I'm not going to church there anymore, every single one of us, even me, then this building would no longer be a temple of God. It would just be a building because the temple of God is comprised of people. So when there are contentions caused by carnal and worldly wisdom, as he's been talking about, well, first of all, that breaks God's heart. Because when there's contentions in the temple, that means that brother and sister, children of God, are going at each other, and that breaks the Father's heart. But we're also defiling and corrupting the temple of God, because we, the people, we are that temple. And so he says, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, and that's the key word there, seems, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, don't you think that if we had a lot lower opinion of ourselves and our wisdom, there'd be a lot less contentions and factions within the church? My thinking is a lot of those contentions are caused because I think more highly of myself and my opinion than I ought to think. And we kind of get caught up in that sort of thing where we think we have wisdom. And don't get me wrong, in measure, God does give to all liberally and without reproach as we ask him. But someone who is really wise is someone who knows that there's just so much that they really don't know. You know, experts talk about a certain amount of information that you know that you know. But there's a lot more information that you know you don't know. And by the way, there's a whole lot more information that you don't know that you don't know. So when it's all said and done, you don't know very much. And that's a good place to start in terms of how wise I am. I don't know very much. And my own wisdom or my tendency, some of the most carnal traits in Christians, or when we are being carnal as Christians, is when I, or when we, or when our little faction thinks that we're the only ones who get it. And then if everyone would just get on our page, and do what we're doing, then everybody would be fine. And that's wisdom run amok. That's not wisdom at all. That's wisdom that needs to be put in check. Paul says, if you seem to be wise in this age, maybe you ought to become a fool that you might become wise. For, verse 19, the wisdom of this world is what? Foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. 
I love that word to describe the wisdom of this world. A couple weeks ago, the Apostle Paul said, the wisdom of this age is coming to nothing. That's why I like that word futile. Because the very best that humanity has to offer in the realm of wisdom is futile. Anyone who disagrees with me, come up after church and explain to me what wisdom of humanity is going to last past this lifetime. I dare you. I double dog dare you. Because there's no such thing. There's nothing you can come up with that's going to matter past this lifetime that is not from God. It's futile. Therefore, he says, end of verse 21, let no one boast in men. Not to say that he's putting down men because God works through men and women. But don't boast in them. They're all gifts from God. Look what he says. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Beautiful list of things that belong to you as a believer. Now, as a side note, I think something that's very fascinating about that list kind of stands out like a sore thumb to me. Like, you know, if you were taking the SATs or something, and it's like, which of these things do not belong? You got Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and the world, and life, and things present, and things to come, and then death? I'd circle that one. That's not a good thing. Why is that there? Except that for the believer in Christ, death is the very thing, unless God would rapture his church, and he may be doing that someday soon, I don't know. But short of that, death is the very thing that will usher us into the presence of Almighty God forever and forever. And, you know, even when you think about someone like Stephen, you remember in the book of Acts when Stephen was being stoned? And sometimes we think, well, I'm not afraid of death, but the process kind of scares me a little bit. Well, there was nothing but glory in Stephen's death. What makes you think that death isn't anything but glorious? If God lists it here among the things that belong to us as Christians... And it's got to be something that's wonderful. And why not? It's where we get to be with Jesus for all of eternity. He says, so all are yours, verse 23, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So you don't have to choose. Isn't that great? You don't have to choose between Paul and Apollos and Cephas. All are yours. The whole body of Christ and all of the giftings within the church body belong to you. Everything in this world, your very life itself, your Christian friends, your fellow uh, co-laborers in Christ, any teachers, anybody you listen to or learn from or fellowship with, all are yours. Every single bit. Why choose one when you can have all three? You know? Why limit yourself to all the gifts in the body? You know, I used to be like that. You know, I used to think, well, you know, here's kind of like, this is what I think my favorite teacher is, and this is where I go to church right here. And now, I do think, by the way, that people should, I encourage people to be plugged into a local body because I think you develop relationships and accountability, and you grow in Christ better that way. I really do believe that. But, you know, there are some folks that don't have a midweek at their church 
So they come to ours. They don't come here on Sundays. They just come on Wednesdays. Isn't that interesting? They don't come on Sundays when I'm teaching, but they love Wednesdays. That's just awesome. <laughs> don't tell them I'm on to them because I don't want them to you know, think about it too much. It's great. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord that they enjoy that. All things are yours, whether Twin Lakes or Christian Life Center or whatever the case may be, Calvary Chapel. Because God does it that way. You listen to someone on the internet, you know, or you read books by Christian authors. All things are yours. Just keep it into perspective is his point. That they're just gifts from God. And they're limited in the scope of breadth of what they're capable of. They're just mere men and women that we study. And that's why as we transition to chapter 4. That's right. There's no chapter break. Right when Paul wrote this, he wasn't. There were no verses or chapters. We'll just go through chapter five or six. We'll see how it goes this morning. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Relax. He says, "Let a man so consider us." You can see he's just flowing with the same thought. Let a man so consider us. Who's us? Paul and Apollos and Cephas, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries. Of God. The New Living Translation basically phrases it this way We're just mere servants. When you think about Paul and Apollos, we're just mere servants who have been uh, put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. And so now we have the answer to that question that we asked last week and that we began with this week, where we said, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? And there's the answer right there We're just mere servants. The word servant is under rower. It's the word for the slave that would have been on the lowest deck of one of those large galley ships, chained to an oar, being whipped by an overseer in order for them to keep the proper pace of the rowing. Welcome to the ministry. <laughs> if you want to be involved in any level of ministry, the entry level the mid-manager or the executive level, it's all the same. It's, quote, servant. But for some reason in our society today, pastor or minister or clergy has been elevated to a status that God never intended it to be elevated to. God never intended anyone to be a star or a celebrity or a sensation or a phenomena. Just a servant. How many churches do you know and just answer this question in the privacy of your heart. How many churches do you know that you've either been a part of or you've seen or you've heard about that have gone through a church split because of the pastor or because a new pastor was being brought in? And probably just about everyone in this room have heard of situations like that, right? Now let's rephrase the question thinking about what a pastor is the right way. How many churches do you know of that have gone through a church split because they're arguing over who the lowest servant in the church will be? That would be none. And that's the problem. Imagine a pretty wealthy family. It's got a number of gardeners and housekeepers. Imagine a family divided over who their favorite housekeeper is. I saw it on a TV show once, but it doesn't correspond to reality at all. This pride, this elevation of people 
Even Jesus addressed it. You may remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they went to Jesus one day and they said, uh, hey Jesus, you know, in your kingdom, would it be all right if we're on your right hand and on your left hand? I mean, we don't want your spot. <laughs> These guys were humble. We don't want your spot, Jesus. We just want to be on your right hand and on your left hand. And Jesus said, well, first of all, you have no idea what you're asking for. Because to be on his right hand and on his left hand would have meant that they would have had to go to the cross. But then he said, okay, wait, you desire greatness in the kingdom? He says, whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so, in light of the Lord Jesus who came to serve and not to be served, and in light of the fact that at best we are at the lowest deck of the galley, rowing in obedience to the orders to row, mere servants, Paul says in verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Isn't that interesting? That the calling placed upon a Christian's life is to be faithful, not successful. Faithful. The word steward there. When you think of steward, maybe you think of Joseph. Remember in Potiphar's house? He was a steward. He was still a servant, but he would oversee, a, a, a steward would oversee the financial affairs, the personal property of their master, but he wouldn't act independently of the master. He would do exactly what the master asked him to do. Be like today, if a real wealthy billionaire type person had like a personal accountant and were to say, hey, you know, um, today I want you to buy me, you know, 10,000 shares of IBM. And then that accountant were to go out and buy 100,000 shares of some penny stock as a surprise. That wouldn't go over very well because they're supposed to be faithful just to carry out exactly what the master us asked of that person. And in the same way, that's what you and I are as Christians. We're not called by God to be super clever. We're not called by God to reinvent his calling upon our life. We're not even called by God to be successful. We're called by God to be faithful. Paul wasn't called by God to try and be more like Apollos. And Apollos was not supposed to be more like Paul. In fact, Paul was well aware of the criticisms that the people in Corinth had of him. In fact, we'll see it when we go to 2 Corinthians. He prints it in the Bible. He knew what they were saying about him. They said his speech is contemptible. And he doesn't have the presence that Apollos had. Isn't that interesting? Paul wasn't a very good speaker, apparently according to the people in Corinth. He was probably a short and stubby guy with a crooked nose. So even though I said, if Paul was coming here for a year and a half, we'd shut down the churches and we'd all go there, we'd all go there and go, well, this guy's no big deal. At least that's what the people in Corinth thought, that he was no big deal. Paul was well aware of their criticisms, and yet he didn't care. Look what he said, verse 3. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. There are two reasons why Christians oftentimes get driven out of the ministry, and they're both found here in verse 3. Number one is because we're judged by others. 
And by the way, if you're involved in that, stop it. Just stop it. It's not good for you. You won't be able to receive wherever you're at if you're standing in judgment over the people that you're sitting underneath. So it's not good for you. And you're going to feel it more than they're going to feel it. But you know what? It does. Every once in a while, it drives someone out of the ministry. You don't want that on your conscience. We're here to encourage and exhort and uplift. There is a time and a place to shoot straight with someone, but for the most part, we should be encouraging and edifying of one another within the body of Christ. But Paul said, look, hey, that's a very small thing to me, what you think about me. And when he says very small, very small thing, he means like the smallest of things. In comparison, he's not saying, I don't care what you think. He's saying, in comparison to God's call upon my life, I really don't care what you think. I'm going to do what he's asked me to do, what he's commissioned me to do. And I'm going to work within the gifting that God's given me. I'm not Apollo, so what? I'm Paul. And this is what God would have me do. Second reason why people sometimes are driven out of the ministry, well, they drive themselves out because they judge themselves. And you ought not to do that either. Paul said, I don't even judge myself. Verse 4, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. Now, when Paul there says, I know of nothing against myself, he's not saying I'm holier than thou, or I'm without sin, or I'm a perfect person. Paul was just a guy who had a great trust in God's grace, that he's able to take his sin, leave it at the cross, and rest in God's grace. I find that there's uh, one of two types of responses. You know, when someone says, I know of nothing against myself, it's either because they really do truly trust in God's grace, or it's because they have a rotten memory, one of the two. <laughs> but if you're Paul, or like Paul was, Paul was somebody who absolutely just left it at the foot of the cross. You should do that this morning if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're born again in the Spirit of God and you're distracted right now because of your sin. Stop it. Leave it at the foot of the cross. He paid too great a price for you to be distracted. He wants to meet with you now, but you're hung up on yesterday. But God loves you. He, he sent his son. He sent his son, not just for eternal life, but for your life now, that you would walk with him. And I think that's where Paul was. I think Paul was able to say, you know, it's hard. I, I'm not, trust me, I get it. Sometimes I struggle with grace. Oh, but if I was really a Christian, I wouldn't have done that. But that was where Paul was. He had really just grown in grace to the point where he didn't even know anything against himself. That's wonderful. It's wonderful to have that kind of an understanding of how good he is. This has nothing to do with me. You don't get to the point where you know nothing against yourself because you've just been really walking with God. It's because you're growing in grace. And that's what Paul did. He says, I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now, herein lies the problem with elevating Apollos or criticizing Paul. 
The problem is, is we don't know the counsel of the hearts. We don't know the hidden things. We don't know what's going inside of a human being. There was a pastor I know of who was doing marriage counseling one time. And as soon as he found out in their first session that the two of them were living together, which is often the case that a pastor will find out, something that he corrects, he went on his little spiel and the woman went running out of the room crying. And the young man turned to the pastor and said, hey, pastor, I know it's not ideal, but I just want you to know that a couple weeks ago, um, a man broke into my fiance's house and raped her. And so I've been sleeping on the couch for protection. And so that pastor afterwards had to come and say, you know, I, I'm so sorry. I should have, you know, before I judged, I should have figured out what was going on in that particular instance. And it is so true for you and for me that we form judgments about people. We've got to be careful about conclusions that we come to when we're not capable of reading someone's heart. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the inference is, I don't even know my own heart. So how can I rightfully judge yours? So maybe I ought not to. And by the way, that's why Paul has been building this illustration all throughout of Paul and Apollos and Cephas and how one plants and one waters and how they're one working together, that they're laborers in God's field, that they're all contributing to God's building. He's using this illustration sort of metaphorically. Again, not that they weren't arguing over who their favorite teacher was, but in reality, they were just arguing. They were arguing amongst themselves. They were comparing themselves. And that may have been the core problem. How do I know? Look at verse 6. He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, and that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. Puffed up means to swell with pride. I'm giving you this illustration because I don't want to call you out by name in God's holy word because you're puffed up. You're comparing yourselves. You're saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Or, you know, they don't have my wonderful gifting. Where would this church be without my incredible gifting? And that's the kind of thing that was going on in Corinth. And so what's Paul getting at here this whole time? This is the climax here. He's trying to get us to think soberly about leaders, about ourselves, about one another. Not too high, not too low. And one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, and if there was one that you could recite from memory so you could leave here this morning and never be tempted to go down this road ever again, don't forget verse 7. He says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? When he says, who makes you differ from another, the idea is, who makes you superior than someone else? And he's not being sarcastic, I don't believe. Indeed, you are superior to some people in some things. 
and they are superior to you in some things. But his question is, and who exactly is it that makes you differ from one another? And by the way, it's a fair question. What is it that you have that you did not receive? Right before you were born, what were you up to? Yeah, there'd be nothing. Remember much about that? No, because you had nothing to do with that. Totally helpless. Your opinion wasn't taken into consideration at all whatsoever. <laughs> you ever been at the ocean and got knocked down by a wave and you just start tumbling? And how much power do you have at that moment in time? That would be none. That's happened to me before. It's like you're in a drying machine or something like that. You can't so much as get, lift yourself out of that situation with all your, you can't do anything except hold your breath and hope. That's all you can do. Pray, Lord, wash me up ashore. Or have me swallowed by a giant fish, something. You have no power in the same way. When you were born, you had nothing to do with who you would be born to, what you would look like, how tall you would be, what color skin, what color eyes, what color hair, your skill sets, your imagination, your intelligence, your entire makeup. You didn't get a vote on that. You are who you are. God said before you were in the womb, I knew you, but you didn't know you and you didn't contribute. You had no role in the equation. Well, you say, well, but since then, <laughs> I have a lot to say about who I am to this day. I'm, I'm a self-made man. Really? You made yourself? <laughs> Before you existed, you created yourself. And you were some sort of a um, spontaneously generated robot or something like that. I know what you mean. No, I mean, I've worked hard to be successful in business, that kind of thing. That's been a lot of my own doing, really. So if you were born with the exact same abilities and intellect and skill set in a tribal village somewhere in New Guinea, very poor, without an educational system, you trying to tell me you would be in the position that you're in today? Probably not. And so, we should keep ourselves in proper perspective. We're not that cool. Not that hot. Not that big a deal. Nor is any human leader or teacher or author anyone for you to be amazed by. It's just a tool in God's hands. And in light of that, it actually helps you to remain humble. All you have to do if you ever, and I know you would never do this, but if you ever have a tendency to swell your head a little bit, you just go, who makes me differ from another? And what do I have that I did not receive? And if I did indeed receive it, why do I boast? As if I had not received it. It's like the pastor who asked his friend, hey, bro, can you pray for me that I stay humble? That I stay humble? To which his friend responded, yeah, sure, but... Before I do that, let me ask you a question. What is it you have to be proud about? <laughs> and that kind of just ruined the whole thing right there. I don't have to pray now. <laughs> Pretty much answered my prayer. Which is, by the way, you know, and this happens all the time. This is good. We should be an encouraging church body. But if any, ever anyone comes up to me and says, hey, pastor, that was a good word. I just say, praise the Lord or praise God. And, you know, I don't want to create a culture where we're afraid to compliment each other because I think it's okay 
I go to you and I say, hey, good job. That was great. Great worship set, guys. But I'm talking about their faithfulness, not their gifting. Their gifting comes from God. I appreciate their faithfulness to work, to practice, to get better so that they sound the way that they sound. But even that is internally driven by God, by God's call upon my life. So when you get credit for something, you know, praise the Lord or praise God. You know, it'd be no different than for you to go in my backyard and go, wow, that tree is beautiful. And for me to go, well, thank you. (laughs) You didn't make that tree. (laughs) But we do that, huh? Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, Uh, that's a nice tree, huh? You know? But it's really no different when it comes to who you are in your life and the gifting that you have that God has given you to use within the body of Christ. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch. I don't forget that. (laughs) And, and, And God helped me hold me back to the wretch who tries to take the wretch out of that song because it's a reminder of who we are apart from Christ. Not much, not much at all. And as our own worship leader likes to say all the time, one of his favorite things, all we are that's any good is in him. Amen.